Well, happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. Mom, where are you? Just so I know. Okay. Keep an eye on my mom. Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, Jenny. This is the privilege you get when you have the microphone. You kind of get to make special mentions. Happy Mother's Day to all you moms. Um, uh, it's a special day. I'm glad the weather is so beautiful today. Hope you enjoy the day. Last week I mentioned to you, and you probably, if you're a member of the church, received an email this week that uh, after today, our community life pastor, Jason Harris, will be going on a six-week sabbatical. So it's going to be good. Really happy for he and Rebecca, but I, I told you last week, I just thinking back and reflecting, it's been over 16 years since Jason came on staff here, and he's been working his tail off ever since. Serving you very well and on call 24-7 and been there for many of you in many circumstances. And, and so we're just glad to be able to bless him with that time off. So uh, after today, if you need something from Jason, we ask that you contact the office here at MHCC. Uh, his emails will be forwarded to the office and we will be sorting out how to handle that. He's got big shoes to fill. So we're expecting uh, to have to navigate that stuff here at the office. But if you, if you are, uh, uh, Jason oversees the ministry you're responsible for, or small group, or anything like that, if you have needs, contact us at the office. Uh, we're prepared to work with you on those things. If you have pastoral needs and otherwise as well, uh, get a hold of us at the office. So, bless you, Jason. Hope you have a great time off, you and Rebecca. So, good stuff. This morning I want to, uh, last week Jeff Wald actually shared with us. Did you, were you guys here last week? Did Jeff rock it or what? I was so pleased with how Jeff did. Um, just outstanding. But he had made reference to my message the week before as a part of his. We had been talking out of John chapter 15, and that's where we're going to be today. If you have a Bible with you and you follow along while I'm speaking, I'm going to be speaking to you uh, out of the Scripture out of John chapter 15. And the first part of John chapter 15 is Jesus talking about, I am the vine and you are the branches. I'm the source. I'm the one with the root system. I'm the one that's feeding the energy, the direction, and the life into you that you might bear fruit. I want to bring some of the top, some of the points that I made while speaking a couple weeks ago back to your memory out of John chapter 15. Jesus is the vine. He's the one we're grafted into. We talked about how plants can be grafted together in very strange ways. And in the same way we've been grafted into Christ, we've been connected to Him, He becomes the source of our life, our nutrition, uh, our direction. And the idea is that the branch from the vine is fruitful, that it bears fruit. And we get into the sometimes uncomfortable conversation about that, that, that in the kingdom of God there's just a, 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 a need for fruit, a drive to grow and produce healthy things in the world. There's an expectation of God that His people be fruitful. That because of their relationship with Christ, they become fruitful in His kingdom. Fruit can look like a lot of different things. It can take the form of healthy relationships or gifts or whatever it is we bring to the table for the benefit of everybody else. And watch that develop and grow into something healthy and life-giving. Even if you think about fruit off of a tree, it's where the reproduction for the next generation comes from. The seeds are in the fruit. And when you and I are out in the world as branches of Christ, 
bearing fruit. There are things for people to enjoy and to benefit from and for seeds to be planted in other people's lives that they might also come to a transformational knowledge of Jesus Christ, relationship with Him, and that they might also be grafted into that vine and understand that transformational power that God gives us. Most of us understand that our root system was flawed before we met Christ. It was lacking. The fruit from that is not necessarily helpful. We saw that the Father is the vine dresser. He comes and He examines. He looks at lives. He looks at the branches and He sees, is this bearing fruit? What kind of fruit is it bearing? Can we trim it back in these areas so that it will grow more fruit? You ever done this experiment with a plant at home? Cut it back? Cut it way down? Sometimes you cut the plant back, you're pretty sure it's not even going to survive. And yet the next spring you have a beautiful plant growing. You ever do that with your lilacs or something like that? Well, in the same way, God does that to us sometimes. He looks at our lives and He looks at the fruit of our lives and whether or not we're producing anything. And He, he makes adjustments. He cuts back so that we might be more fruitful. And sometimes that pruning is painful. When God's taking a look at your life and He's examining, He's cutting things out, He's putting His finger on things, He's going, ah, I think I'm going to remove this from your life. Or I'm going to challenge you in this area. I'm going to challenge you in this doctrine. I'm going to challenge you in this behavior. I'm going to challenge you in the things that you're saying or whatever it may be. And He starts pruning back. He uses each other to do that sometimes too, doesn't He? Our relationships are so important because other people in our lives are there to benefit us in our fruit-bearing process. Because that's really what we're we're in. We're in a process in this life where we're bearing fruit for the kingdom of God. You and I are the branches. And then Jesus tells us, abide in me. Remain in me. Stay there. Stay connected. So often, it's, it's so easy to, you know, particularly early on in our walk with Christ, but no matter where you're at in your walk, it's like it can often get to where you know you 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 have this experience with God and it passes very quickly. The emotional high of it is gone, and you're still going through the difficulties of life, and we disconnect from the source. We just get caught up in our routine, we get caught up in our schedule, we get discouraged about our circumstances, we don't feel God working necessarily in our lives, and we disconnect from God. Or sometimes we sometimes treat God like the ticket master for heaven. We've talked about this analogy before. Oh, I, I, go to, I go to Jesus. He gives me my ticket into heaven. I don't have to relate to him ever again. I got my ticket. I'm in. And we disconnect from the source of life. Jesus is saying, when you get grafted into me, stay there. Stay connected to me. I'm the one that feeds you. I'm the one that causes you to bear fruit. I'm the one who puts the things into your lives, the nutrition, if you will, the spiritual nutrition, that you would bear fruit. And his expectations are met. Abide in me. From the very beginning of creation, we see so many things in the creation story that just set the stage for the situation of humanity. And one of those things is that, is that there would be a fruitfulness. Be fruitful and multiply, he said. Subdue the earth and rule over it. This thing was put into the DNA and the spirit of man by God himself that man would go about the earth and subdue it in some way, shape, or form. And we do that in a variety of ways. Isn't it interesting? I mean, yeah, we know what it's like to be lazy, but mankind in general has moved forward. Constantly going to the next knowledge or information or back in the ancient times conquering this land and that and building cities and 
building empire. He's always got this drive inside of him to rule and subdue, to keep going forward, a drive in mankind. I think God put that in us in creation. When we're young, we can't wait to grow up. When we grow up, we can't wait to be married. When we're married, we can't wait to have kids. It's on and on and on, et cetera, et cetera. There's always next. What's next? A looking forward. Why? Because God put inside of all of us in our, in our genetic makeup and in our spirit something of himself that's creative and desiring to grow and desiring to be fruitful. And he puts that drive inside of us. I want to say, before I move on to the other verses that I want to cover today, that our fruitfulness is only due to Him. Any time that we are trying to, if I could say the word conjure up, some sort of energy, some sort of information, some new revelation, something to help us be more fruitful apart from God, we're not going to produce the fruit that we want. Our fruitfulness is due to a connection to Him and the resources He gives through His Holy Spirit that we would be fruitful. Stay connected to Him. I want to go uh, verses 9 through 11 out of John 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide. In my love. As the Father has loved me. Did the Father love Jesus? Well, Jesus was here. He was demonstrating amazing things. He was walking in a power that the world had not yet really seen. He was demonstrating the, that God was with him. In fact, some of the people that challenged him in his life, like Nicodemus, coming to him and saying, we know God must be with you. Nobody could do what you do if the Father wasn't with him. The Father loved Jesus. But Jesus, just in, in so much of this part of the Scripture, now keep in mind, John chapter 15, you know, John has, of all the Gospels, has all this information and this teaching of Christ between the Last Supper and his betrayal. There's just a whole bunch of information there. If John's meant to be understood chronologically, there was a significant conversation that took place between the Last Supper, Jesus washing their feet, and Jesus being betrayed in the garden. All, there's just chapters of John covering this. And he's, he, he's starting to prepare them for the idea that he's going to be gone. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Jesus, in, in these teachings, often sets himself as the example. Okay, listen guys. The Father, just like the Father loves me, I've loved you. I've reflected something to you. I've shown you something about the Father and His love. One of the weaknesses of the Jewish law and the covenant leading up to that point was that it was easy to just slip into a legalistic relationship with God rather than an actual relationship with God. And Jesus, amazingly, through what He does on the cross and all of His teachings, begins to bring those things to a culmination of understanding about the Father heart of God. He fulfills that law on our behalf. And in this, he's saying, I, I'm the example. Look, I'm reflecting to you the love that the Father gives to me. I'm giving it to you. Stay in my love. Stay there. Abide. Live there. Give yourself to it. I think it's helpful here to, uh, before we get into, because we're going to look at this word love quite a number of times in these 
few scriptures, and I want to talk about the word love. Love, in our context, the way we use it today, it's got a lot of broad meaning, and it, and it actually does, even biblically. There's a lot of aspects to the idea of love and what it means. What does it mean that God loves me? What does it mean that I love God? We sing these songs, and they're very, I don't know, sometimes I wrestle with, I feel a little bit mushy about it. Like it's some sort of romantic love kind of thing, and I'm like, ugh, that's not really what this is about. But oftentimes we can end up on one end of the spectrum or the other of what love is. You know, you, I always, I'm sure I've shared this with you many times, but in my mind I'm always imagining a set of scales because there's so many issues in life where there are extremes. You have one way over here and you have one way over here and the reality is somewhere in the middle on certain issues in life. And we're always trying to find where, where's God's heart in this. Is love, does love mean romantic love? Is love an emotion? Is it those butterflies you got when you, when you met that special someone? Is that what love is? Or is love the far other end? When I, I was trying to think of a way to describe this to you, I, I was thinking of my, some of my friends in, in India who, in India, they arrange your marriage. That totally changes your view on love, radically. The American mindset freaks out at that idea. First of all, nobody tells me what to do, right? I'm totally independent. I'm the master of my own destiny. Everything is my choice. That's kind of the American mindset. In a place like India, where they, or, or even in the Jewish culture where the marriage was arranged, love was a choice. It was a decision you made. I want to read to you out of uh, a book I thoroughly enjoyed recently. You've probably caught bits of it here and there in some of my messages lately. It's a book by Bradford Scott. It's called Let This Mind Be In You, A Historical Study of the Difference Between Greek and Hebrew Thought. And I want to read to you what he has to say about the definition of love and how these separate philosophies affect us. In Greek thought, love is a feeling or emotion that is solicited and demonstrated by feeling or emotion. There are different types of these emotions and different Greek words for defining these emotions. For example, there is brotherly love, erotic love, and committed love. Committed love is the love that man is to have for the gods. This is the famous agape Greek kind of love that is taught in the church today. This love, however, is demonstrated by feelings or emotion as an act of expressing true commitment. Hate is also a feeling of emotion that is generally reactionary. One can love until something negative happens or is expressed, and then love can quickly turn to hate. Hate does not have a place in Greek thought as an original action. It is a reaction. One could easily hate the gods as an emotional reaction to negative circumstances, and one could just as easily love them when the circumstances change. When love is based on feeling or emotion, then feeling or emotion can cause it to change to hate. Now we see this played out very thoroughly in our culture. What's the Eagles song? After, is it the Eagles? After the thrill is gone? This is the way we live. I, I meet somebody, I get Twitter-pated, I have butterflies in my stomach, 
we engage in relationship. That relationship hopefully moves on and develops, and maybe we get married or whatever. But man, the minute the emotion is gone, we're faced with this complex idea that perhaps we've fallen out of love. Love isn't something you just fall into and fall out of. It's just a wrong understanding of love. So when I don't feel something anymore, when I'm not Twitter-pated anymore, when I don't have emotion attached to my relationship with somebody, do I now have the permission to leave because the love is no longer there? If you define love by that Greek thinking, then yes, that's what happens. We lose the emotion. We get bored. Why do affairs happen? Why does divorce happen? Why are we in and out of relationships so easy? Because it's heavily, heavily dependent upon our emotions and how we feel. It's the same thing with lots of things. We're emotionally drawn to something. We get gratification out of it in some sort of way until after that thrill is gone and move on to something else. He goes on to talk about Hebrew love, the idea of... Uh, in Hebrew philosophy, what love is. In Hebrew thought, love is based on the idea of preference or choice. It is not an emotional concept. When God said that he loved Jacob and hated Esau, he meant that he chose Jacob and did not choose Esau. When God in Genesis 22 said that he loved Isaac, he meant that he preferred Isaac. Love and hate are not emotional concepts in scriptural thinking. When Jesus said... If you love me, you will keep my commandments, which is the next verse we're going to look at. He was saying that if you have chosen me, or if you prefer me, then do what I say. When he said that men love darkness rather than the light, he was saying that men preferred to choose or chose the darkness over the light. In a Hebrew betrothal, the father chooses the son's bride. I think we should kind of institute some of these things, don't you think? Parents, moms, I should get to pick, huh? The father chooses his son's bride. When the vows are spoken, the son and the bride choose each other. In the commandments it is written that you are to love the Lord your God. You are to prefer the Lord your God. This is directly related to the first two commandments, which state that you are to have no gods before him. It is a matter of choice. In the Greek culture, emotion is solicited first, then commitment. Isn't that true? Emotion is solicited first, then commitment. Emotion must be sustained or the commitment fails. Why? Because it began with emotion. In Hebrew thought, emotion is a result of commitment. I think we see this also play out over time. That when we've been committed to one another for long periods of time and we've worked through the difficulties, particularly in marriage, been married a long time and you've gone through a lot of difficult and bad situations, you've learned to work through things together, and in many ways, oftentimes, we can say that love is better the further along you get. Now, why is that? Because it's not just an emotion anymore. It's grown into something that's deeper in the commitment. There's respect. There's a preferring of one another. There's a laying down of selfishness, which really I think is the key, right? To love would to be laid down yourself. To prefer somebody else. To give them the preference. 
in reality, not pretend. Because we do that too. It's like we just kind of stuff what we want in order to prefer the other person, but really to prefer them. And I think that's what some of those wiser people who have had long-time relationships would tell you. Yeah, some, there's the ups and downs of the emotion, but with the commitment and the endurance of time, there's a more powerful connection that takes place, a more lasting one. And it might not always be the butterflies and those kind of things, but it's something that lasts because we lay hold of a broader understanding of what it means to love. And that's what we have to keep in mind when we're reading these scriptures. Jesus is speaking to Hebrew people. He's talking about their concepts of love and their understanding of it. I'm not saying that the emotional component of love is wrong. It's a great part of relationship is experiencing those good things. But we have to have a right understanding of love. And I just love, I, I just love thinking about that idea that after commitment, after giving yourself, after being dedicated, there's a greater reward of fulfillment that happens in your life. So as the Father has loved me, as the Father has preferred me, so I have loved you. I've preferred you. I've given myself for you. Abide in my love. Stay there. Stay in that favor. Stay in that preferment. Stay in that thing that I've extended to you. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. This can be difficult when we read situations like this and don't completely understand love. That's why I think it's so valuable to try and grasp the whole concept of love when we read this. Because if you just read this on the surface, particularly with an uh, immature kind of thinking, you think that, well, Jesus is just wants me to work for him, and then he'll love me back. Who wants to be in a relationship like that? You just do the right thing, and I'll like you. But if you screw up, I'm not going to like you anymore. And we have to be really careful that we do not interpret the Scripture that way. If we do not, do not understand the whole of love, the, the correct understanding of love, then we run the risk of viewing God as a finicky God who you may be in favor with and may be out of favor the next day based on whether or not you obeyed him the day before or not. But I think what he's challenging us with is something deeper than that. There's a favor that's extended to us from God, a love, a preference, and he invites us into it that we would remain in it. If you will follow my commands, if you'll follow my ways, if you'll follow my example, if you'll take what I've taught you seriously in my scriptures and live that, you're going to stay in that place of favor and love that I have extended to you, that I have given to mankind. I mean, we, we have to take the whole of the, the scripture into context as well. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever would believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Just a fundamental thing that we've talked about many times. God is motivated by love. His desire to prefer you. His desire to extend a grace and a peace and a joy to you drives why he does what he does. God loves everyone. But God does not bless everything. God does not bless your every behavior. God doesn't extend his favor in everything that we do. There's a way that's in alignment with God and a way that's misaligned. That's what sin is, misalignment, right? And when we step outside of God's commandments and we 
pull ourselves out of joint with him and go a different direction, we removed ourselves from that favor. We don't reap blessing from those things. And we don't reap favor from that. Jesus is imploring them. I've demonstrated for you, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and remain in his love. Jesus, again, makes himself the example. I am the example to you. Look at what I did. Look at how I lived. Look at how I behaved. Bring yourself into alignment with this, and you also will remain in the Father's favor, in His love, in His preference of you. We have to be careful that we don't get into an overly simplistic idea of relationships with God as though I, I, I screwed up yesterday, He doesn't love me, but I'll make it right today and do the right thing, and then He loves me, and then tomorrow when I screw up, He won't love me again, and then the day after that, I'll get it right. And he'll love. But we live that way, and we think that way. Actually, that thinking drives a lot of people's motives. It drives mine sometimes. It's like, why would God help me out today? I've just been a jerk lately. Why would God want to bless me at all? I just, whatever, fill in the blank. Jesus starts redefining the relationship here and starts redefining their understanding of the Father. It's an instructional moment. You've witnessed something. You've watched me in action. This is what Jesus is saying. This is how I've lived. You do the same. If statements always have the potential of messing us up, don't they? If you keep my commandments. And we immediately formulate a, formulate a formula in our head. If and then statements, right? If you do this, then. And so we try and put this perfect formula into place where I can somehow just check the box. And it's more complicated than that. How would that be you know, in my relationship with Janie, my wife? Or to, with your mom on Mother's Day or something like that. You just, oh, i got to check the boxes and get her the flowers and the card and the, yeah, she'll feel loved. No, it's deeper than that, isn't it? It's more complex than that. It's more simple than just going through the motions. It's actually giving of yourself. I love this next passage about joy. These things I have spoken to you. Jesus does this several times. Just right before I go on to the next phrase. He does this several times through these passages. He, he says, these things I have spoken to you. He, he draws attention to what he's been saying. Even earlier on, and we looked at it a couple weeks ago, he says, you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you. Like, kind of like, what? And several times he draws attention to, I've said these things to you that... Which reminds me, and I hope it reminds you, of the power and the value of God's words. When, when Jesus spoke these things, there's a timelessness to them. If we read the scripture as though everything were completely relevant to only those circumstances in that time, we don't have a scripture anymore. But we don't see it that way. God's word is timeless. And it's powerful. And Jesus is saying, I'm speaking these things. These are from the Father. There's power in them. And there's a reason I do it, and I love this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. <laughs> Who could use more joy in their life? How many people think the person next to them could use some more joy in their life? Yeah, man, we could all, we're all like, it's just such an issue for us, isn't it? Particularly, it seems like these days. And this this time and just so much 
unhappiness and frustration in the world. And, but that's the world's way. That's the world's system. And yet Jesus brought us something. Why did he say these things? He told us why. That my joy may be in you. There's a joy that comes with being connected to the vine and remaining in the love of the Father and following the commands of the Son. I think about it this way frequently. That we will never really be fulfilled, have that sense of joy, peace. Life is what it's supposed to be, a wholeness, which is really what peace is about. We're not going to have a sense of that until we bring ourselves in alignment with the one who made us. You ever uh, tear apart an engine and put it back together and have leftover parts? It's a bad sign. When you take a part of something, like a machine, and you try and make it fit somewhere else in that machine, it doesn't do really what it's supposed to. And if that part had emotions, it probably wouldn't have a lot of joy. And it may not understand what its place in life is, just like we don't always understand. But when we bring ourselves into alignment with the one who designed it and the one who cares about us, there's a fulfillment that takes place when we find ourselves in alignment with the one who rules it all and who designed it and who designed you intricately. Only he knows you fully. Only he understands you from the beginning to the end. Only he does. When we bring ourselves in alignment with him, connecting to the vine, remaining in his love, following his commands, we have this to look forward to, that his joy would be in us and that that joy would be full. Does that sound good? Let's talk about the word joy for a few minutes. I think when you kind of word study joy a little bit, it, you'll, it, it's in the same, it has the same root. So the, the one word that those of you that do word study will recognize is the word for grace, which is charis or charis. And it's the idea that God has extended a favor towards us. And that kara, that first root Word is the same, it's the same beginning of the word for peace. It's the same beginning for the word for joy. It's the idea that God has given something. God has been the source of something. They, they all draw from the same original meaning. And for joy, it's kara. You have kara, you have keras, you have kairiro, which is rejoicing. It's this idea of delight and a gladness and a fullness. I'm going to read to you what Martin Lloyd-Jones talked about when he spoke about joy in his book, Life and Christ's Studies in 1 John. He wrote that in any definition we may give of New Testament joy is that we do not go to a dictionary. We go to the New Testament instead. This is something quite peculiar which cannot be explained. It is a quality which belongs to the Christian life in its essence. I mean, in a way, kind of arguing that we have drawn the definition of joy from its actual original definition, which comes from the Scripture, which is actually true of a lot of our language. So that in our definition of joy, we must be careful that it conforms to what we see in our Lord. 
The world has never seen anyone who knew joy as our Lord knew it, and yet he was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. So our definition of joy must somehow correspond to that. Joy is something very deep and profound, something that affects the whole and entire personality. In other words, it comes to this. There is only one thing that can give true joy, and that is the contemplation of the Lord Jesus Christ. He satisfies my mind. He satisfies my emotions. He satisfies my every desire. He and his great salvation include the whole personality and nothing less. And in him I am complete. Joy, in other words, is the response and the reaction of the soul to the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. A little deeper than maybe simple happiness, huh? A lot of times I think when we think about having happiness and joy, or even in, in the conversation about what it is to love, our original sort of motivation is selfish. I put myself first. That's why I'm looking for love. want to be loved. want to... You know, I want that special relationship. I want joy in my life. Therefore, I'm going to find things that make me happy. Whether they be legal or illegal, good or bad, I'm looking for something to make me happy. I have this self-motivation for joy. I have a self-motivation for peace. Not necessarily wrong to want those things, but then we look at really where the source is, and it's that we lay ourselves down giving our lives to Christ, submitting to our relationship with Him, He's going to be the source of that real lasting satisfaction of joy in our lives. It's interesting here that to just ponder the idea that Jesus' intention was that we have joy. How could that be? He knew we would suffer. He goes right on into paragraphs, which we'll talk about next time, about persecution and being hated. And we're supposed to have joy? but it is something that is from him. It's, it's a fulfillment that cannot be found in the world. And it can't be found in worldly things. It's only found when we abide in him, remain connected to him. Joy, there's like the abiding joy. You can draw the idea or talk, draw off the idea that, you know, we can have momentary joy. We can have momentary fulfillment. And we find that in hypocrisy, Right? When we're hypocritical about things, we can find moments of joy, but then we move on. It's like I can fake it long enough. I'll I'll play the church game. I'll do the thing. I'll I'll you know whether it's addictions, whether it's uh, whatever it is in, in your life, we have these momentary things that we can draw off of. But the the joy that comes from hypocrisy is short lived. That's why relationship with Christ is so important, and just going to church isn't enough. What is one of the biggest accusations that people in the world have towards the church, real or not, is hypocrisy. People are hypocrites. Yep, we are. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all make mistakes. No one here is pretending we're trying to be perfect. But if we try and f find fulfillment just by checking the box and being hypocritical, it's going to be a short-lived joy. There has to be a genuine connection long-term, a committed connection to Christ himself if we really want to experience that. I believe that there's just no true lasting joy apart from the transformational relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, let's move on to verses 12 through 17. This is my commandment. 
that you love one another as I have loved you. Now this is my command. This is what I'm telling you. This is what I'm instructing you in. That you would love one another, prefer one another, as I have loved you. How did he love us? He was just foreshadowing about what he's about to do. And he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is the greatest love. And really, what do we see in here? Yes, the greatest love is that Jesus laid down his life for us. But he's saying, in my example, I'm demonstrating to you what I want you to do. Love as I have loved you. So much so that I have laid down all of myself on your behalf. This is what he's called you and I to do for each other. How we are to relate to each other. It's his commandment that we would love one another with a selfless love. That we would lay down our selfishness and prefer one another. This is a radical message. Maybe the Beatles were right. All you need is love. Was it the Beatles? I don't know. But really, in a right understanding of it, yes, this is key to the kingdom of God. That we would lay down everything for everybody else. You are my friends if you do what I command you. See, Jesus starts drawing his disciples into this conversation about relationship here. And he starts moving into the transition from servant to friend. But he's setting it up with this idea that love one another as I have loved you. See, there's this principle in the kingdom, and we see it in different ways. Things like it's better to give than to receive, right? Tell your kids that at Christmas. You reap what you sow. Whatever you give into something, whatever you sow into it, however you're laying down your life, you're going to reap something from that. But if we're self-driven and selfish in our motivations and only seeking to satisfy ourselves and trying to take that from other people, we're contradicting exactly what Jesus taught us to do. Now this can apply to lots of different things in our lives, but I like to think of this in terms of the church and in terms of the way we relate to one another, whether or not we prefer one another, whether or not we lay down our lives for one another. I'm just often bothered by the division in the body of Christ. It just bothers me. Because what breaks relationship in Christians all the time is disagreement, not being on the same page, not believing exactly the same things. And we slip into the wrong mindset about what this kingdom is about. This kingdom is about being right and getting it all right, and getting all your doctrine right and doing church just right. Preaching just right and the right translation of the Bible, right doctrine, right theology, right, 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 right. If you disagree with me, you're wrong. And I'm going to be divided from you. I don't care if you're part of my family. I don't care if you're a brother and sister. I don't care that Jesus told me to lay down my life on your behalf. What? Oh, man. Wouldn't the world transform if more and more and more of God's people could lay hold of this truth, this commandment? that we really in a genuine and sincere way could lay down self and be sacrificial for one another's needs and towards one another's lives, it would change the world. That's what he's called us to, a sacrificial love, a selfless love. There's no greater love. 
I want to talk just briefly about a servant mindset, and we'll wrap it up. goes on. He talks about, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. What's the difference between a servant and a friend? Well, I think that's an obvious illustration, isn't it? We could dive into that and dissect it all day long. I was thinking about it in terms of some things, you know, like, it's so easy to just be legalistic if you're just a servant. Just do the right thing. Don't draw attention to yourself. Check the boxes. Collect your wage and go home. Done deal. We see that a lot in, in, in our work situations. It's, we, don't, we, don't ha- we don't have to carry the weight of whether or not a company had profit or loss or whether the owner of our, the business we work for succeeds or not. I just want to check my box, collect my paycheck, go home. Or in terms of, I was thinking of it in terms of law enforcement, like I'm going to go the speed limit, okay? I'm going to, I'm going to obey the laws. I'm going to park where I'm supposed to park, <coughs> right? You parking cheaters, I've seen you out there. Hey, did you hear they're not mar- marking tires anymore with the chalk? All you parking cheaters are like, yes. Why do we follow the laws of the land? Why do we obey those? We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. I don't want to be in a relationship with police officers. I don't want the local police station to know who I am. So I just check the boxes. Be sure I follow the laws. Just obey. Don't draw attention to yourself. There's no relationship there, and I like it that way. But that's not the way it is with Christ. He's calling us to be more than just people who follow the laws. He's calling us to be people that are in relationship with The friend knows what the master is doing. The friend understands the nature of the business. When you're part of a family business, you know about the profit and the loss. You know about next year and the future and the vision and what needs done and the seasons and all these kinds of things. When you're drawn into an ownership in those situations, we begin to understand the heart behind what we do. And this is what Jesus has called us to, to walk with him every day to hear from Him, to see what He's doing, to obey His commands, and reach the world around us. We have to, it's just such a healing and uh, deep revelation for many people when they come to the understanding that I'm not just a servant. I'm a friend. I'm a friend of God. He's brought me into His business. He's brought me into His project that He's working on. He's brought me into his family. He's adopted me. I wasn't a part of it, but he adopted me. And now I understand the inner workings of this family. And I understand the vision of this family and its future. And I understand what the goals of this family are. And we want more people in this family. I understand that now. So I am going to serve, but I'm going to serve like I know what's going on. Like I'm an owner in this situation. Like it really matters to me what the outcome is. That's a big difference. We know the master's business. We're highly, we're in a highly inclusive relationship with him. And lastly, last verse I want to cover. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide. Draws us back to the idea of the vine and the branches and also a highly um, controversial theological subject in 
um, in the church world is who chose who. Clearly, there's a sovereignty issue here that we have to wrestle with. Jesus chooses us. Janie talked about that today. God's chosen you. He's touched your life. He's been working in your heart. He's been drawing you into relationship with Him. You wouldn't even know who He was if He didn't choose to reveal Himself to you. There's something powerful in that. It stirs our faith. But we go back to the idea that you should go and bear fruit. Again, we're faced with that question. Am I bearing fruit? How do I bear fruit? What does the fruit in my life look like? If I remain connected to the vine, if I obey His commandments, if I walk with Him like a friend, if I'm loving my brothers and sisters and laying down my life on their behalf and really doing so in a selfless way, you have set yourself up to be fruitful and thus fulfill the call of God on your life. Whatever you ask in my Father's name, He may give it to you. Again, if, if God is our friend, we understand the will of God, we're walking with God, we understand sometimes what it is God wants from us. But if I just walk by a Cadillac and say, Oh, Lord, in your name I pray that I could have that Cadillac or that new car or that new gun or that new whatever. That's not what we're talking about here. It's talking about a people that's so connected to the vine. They understand the heart of God, what God is doing. They're praying. They're seeking Him. And they become, come to understand His will. And when, we, when they pray for those things, God blesses them and causes them to be fruitful. Would you stand, please? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful that we aren't left on our own to try and please you. That we aren't left to our own devices to try and produce fruit for you. Somehow trying to please you in vain, but rather you've partnered with us. You've adopted us. You've transformed our hearts. And you're breathing life into us all the time. And Father, I pray for Mount Helena Community Church today, that you would bring us all collectively into greater fruitfulness, into a tighter walk with you, into deeper understanding of your love for us and the friendship you've extended to us. Father, I pray for all of those that can't even get their head around the idea of relating to you or what it means to be in relationship with you. Father, I pray you'd be drawing them near to you. And Father, whatever areas you're challenging us to be fruitful, to take risks, to reach out to you for help, God, that you would give us faith for those things. Father, I pray for the families here today and everyone present, Lord, that your, your breath would be in them that they would be seeing you at work somehow in the world around them, that they'd be recognizing that you are prompting all of us to do things, to take action, to obey commands, to walk with you, and to be fruitful. Pray for your strength and your courage to do so. I pray that you'd stir our faith. Lord, I pray for great testimony in the days and years ahead from a group of people that loves so vibrantly that it's just fruitful and produces so much. Father, we want to be people that are able to transform a community because of their love for one another and for your people. I pray that you bless each one today. In Jesus' name, amen.